Welcome to EDI on BIV. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor at Business in Vancouver. The World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, published recently, just a couple months ago, finds that the pandemic has set women in the workforce back a generation. I'm joined today for this conversation by co-host Chantal Krish, returning to the show for a conversation. She is the Director of Communications, Programs and Outreach with the Office of the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia. Chantal, great to have you back. Great to be here. And also joining us today is our guest, Tina Strelke, CEO of Minerva BC, which provides leadership development programs for women and girls and partners with organizations in the province to advance gender parity in British Columbia. Over the years, Minerva BC has also researched and tracked the face of leadership and how it's changing in the province. Tina, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So does this hold true here in BC? Do you think women in the workforce have been set back a generation by the pandemic? Well, all indicators and folks that are measuring things uh, like economic participation of women are indicating that women have been set back. The biggest statistic comes from the Royal Bank that suggests women in Canada have been set back 30 years in our labor force participation. And so, yeah, it is something that is a concern. It is something that is affecting women in different ways across our our province. Wow. And that's quite shocking to hear 30 years. What are some of the practical implications or consequences when we say being set back? What does that potentially mean? Well, I'll take a step back and and reference back to the the global uh, gap report the World Economic Forum produces. One of the things that they measure is women's economic participation in the labor force. They also measure education. Uh, They also measure health and and sort of wellness. um, And they also measure how women are participating in in politics. When we look at the economic participation of women, women in Canada have always been behind men in terms of the types of employment that they hold and the amount that they work. So women tend to work more part-time hours and women tend to work in um, lower paying, lower skilled positions overall than men. Which, which is part of what, uh, how that measurement comes to the fore, that women are behind men. That's, um, of course, it's really troubling to hear. And it's something that I believe a number of um, organizations are, are working very hard to continue to highlight the different implications that you just described and to try and address some of the gaps that we're seeing for women. Um, you know, my understanding is that women are not just taking, having to take a forced step back, but actually having to take a step out of the labor force completely. Um, can you comment on sort of just explain sort of how this affects women at different age groups um, over the course of their lives. And, you know, I know that you, the Minerva programs really worked with women from sort of early stages in their career development to um, as they advance in their careers. So can you just speak a little bit to what that looks like across that, that spectrum? Sure. So I think it's, if we think about women's uh, progression through the labor market, and we, we know that women take more time out from the labor market in order to provide care for families and in order to have children. That burden still is largely uh, on women when they take out parental leave. One of the biggest factors in British Columbia is where women work. And so the Canadian Women's Foundation published a report early in the pandemic and talked about the five C's of employment. So caring, clerical, catering, cashiering, and cleaning being five sectors where women are concentrated overall. 
we know in BC that 80% of our labor market is, is service-based versus goods producing based. Um, and so if we looked at the service sector, that's where a lot of women are concentrated in employment. So back to your question about the trajectory, a lot of women early in careers will find their footsteps into the labor market. So the first jobs, first job out of um, school in a service sector type job, uh, and they may continue on in that path they may return to that type of work after having children because it provides flexibility, part-time hours. And so I think the concentration of women and where they work and the fact that that impacts women both at early stages of career and then all the way through mid to senior is an issue. The other piece is that women are not promoted uh, as much as men are. So women are about 30% less likely to get promoted that first promotion to a manager position. And overall in Canada, women only represent 35% of managerial positions. So the progression in employment to higher paying jobs or to uh, leadership positions is still slower. And so that impacts at that mid to senior level where later on in careers, women are still behind men in terms of wage earnings, in terms of opportunities, in terms of leadership. There's a lot to unpack there. I want to focus for a moment on, on the stat you suggested around promotions. Why is that? And is there anything that women themselves who maybe find themselves being overlooked for a promotion or feel that they've been overlooked, anything that they can do or are they up against some more systemic challenges that maybe nothing they can do aside from perhaps looking elsewhere for employment? Yeah, I mean, there's both sides to that. Of course, there's things that women can do to manage their careers. Um, I think the, the commentary more and more is sort of looking at what is systemically in place in organizations that is holding women back, both visible and invisible barriers. So there's a lot of focus on unconscious bias. And we know that there are certain things that are valued in leadership that are valued um, in how people perform and that bias is sort of embedded in our organizational systems like hiring and promotion. So I think, I think it's both. I think a lot of the work and some of the work Minerva does in terms of upskilling women and providing leadership programs is focused on that. How do you manage your career in this environment? But we also start to need, need to look at the environments themselves and think about how can we de-bias systems and structures and organizational policies to ensure that we mitigate the impacts of those kind of systems that also unfairly um, create barriers for women. Absolutely. It's important to have that sort of bottom up approach supporting women in that career development piece. But if you, yeah, if you don't take a top down look at things, um, it's always going to be hitting that ceiling that so many women have been fighting to break for a very long time. Tina, can you explain what that sort of top down approach or, you know, systemic change piece uh, looks like and maybe some of the examples of, of things that you're doing leading Minerva that are helping to address that uh, that that piece of this puzzle. Sure, sure. So I think Minerva's work sort of in this realm, working with organizations is through our Face of Leadership initiative. And we, and we took five years to measure where women are at in leadership in British Columbia. And through that, we built relationships with organizations. We have over 30 CEOs who signed a pledge to advance women in leadership. Um, and so through those relationships, one of the biggest areas that we encourage organizations to think about is how to focus on equitable hiring and equitable promotions. So how do you minimize the impact of personal bias or individual bias and managerial bias in those processes? And with hiring in particular, a big part of it is how do you widen the pool? So how do you attract more people to your organization who may not be applying in the first place? So if you're getting a lot of applicants, 
but you're not seeing women apply, there's, there's things that you can do to change the language of your job description to think about where you're posting the position who you're building relationships with to get the word out um, to try and attract more women into those positions there's some really really clear and lots of best practices around what you can do if women are applying but they're not being hired then you have to look at your screening process you're screening you're interviewing and how that looks statistically if there's only one woman on the shortlist in your interview process she's not going to be hired so you need to ensure that more women are making it past that first uh, screening process into the interview and into the shortlist to be able to increase the numbers of women. When you're looking at hiring uh, or sort of into the promotion area, uh, recognizing that women are higher promoted at a less rate than men, thinking about how you measure and how do you give feedback. Women tend to get less quality feedback, less constructive feedback. They tend to get more comments on um, their personal characteristics of how they do the work and they tend to be measured on output and not potential. And so there are some, some things that happen in an evaluation process and women adapt to that uh, by continuing to sort of put their head down, do the work and sort of prove that they've done it. Women also tend not to apply for work. So tapping women on the shoulder, giving them opportunities, uh, you know, taking a chance, taking a risk, mentoring and sponsoring them to take on a stretch challenge, um, having them shadow, having them sit in on important meetings, giving them exposure to leaders and senior leaders are all things that are easy to do and create those pathways and those opportunities where women can find, uh, find their way forward and find their way into new opportunities. Tell us a bit, Tina, about the pace of change, because I know organizations such as Minerva have been speaking about this and working in this area for years, and a lot of companies, too, for years, have made commitments and expressed uh, intentions to do more to make a workplace more inclusive and equitable. Considering the setbacks that maybe existed before the pandemic and what we're dealing with now as a result of the pandemic, what kind of timeline are we looking at until we see perhaps more meaningful equity in terms of gender equality and parity? Well, we're still over 100 years away. So if the pace of change continues as it is today, uh, you know, the projections globally are 135 years and Canada is sort of in the realm of about 100 years away from from parity on all those measures that that sort of come from that global, global gender gap report. Um, for me, when I think about our population, I think about our workforce, I think about who's in the labor market, and I think about education levels, Canada's closed the gap on education and has for many years. So women are graduating at same rates of men, if not higher in some sectors. Women have been present and working in certain industries and sectors for a long time where we sh the, the leadership ranks should look different by now uh, if they were equitable, fair processes and systems. So I think really the the onus is on organizations and that leadership from the top to recognize that there are things in the culture that need to change in order to accelerate the pace of change. And sometimes you have to take bold risks. There's a local tech company in BC um, that was hiring a lot of people in a short period of time and realized as a tech company hiring engineering roles, they could definitely uh, keep the, the balance uh, sort of way towards, towards men. And they took the opportunity to say, well, how do we make sure that we don't fall further behind? And they instituted quotas and they did it really well. They communicated, they talked about how they were doing it. They talked about why, not just to the 
people in the organization, but also to the applicants. And it was hugely successful, but it was very intentional. And it was a bold move to say, we're actually going to take the step and say, we're setting quotas for uh, how many women we want to bring into the organization and, and didn't compromise either on quality or um, skills or any of the talent that they were bringing. And that was, that was really upfront that that wasn't happening and it worked. So sometimes it takes more resources and effort and intentionality than just hoping by being uh, a good workplace that you'll attract what you need to attract. I'm I'm not happy that you brought up the the point about quotas because it's certainly something that is a little bit divisive in this kind of work, um, and but we have seen them work, you know. And so I'm curious as to your perspective on quotas um, and why you think there's a bit of a polarization, you know, of ideas around quotas. You know, what's behind that, and and why, and yeah, what's your perspective on on implementing them? I think what's behind that is a bias that is holding the bias that women still can't compete or still aren't as good as men or that there isn't the talent there. So I think I think the bias towards, well, it is a fair process. And if women aren't there, then they haven't been able to match the quality, the standard, the talent that we need, which is is false. So I think there's a belief that if you have a quota, you're somehow lessening uh, the quality and the caliber of candidate that you're bringing in, which is false. Uh, it's it's false. You can't say that there aren't women who uh, have the talent in all aspects of all kinds of work that we have today. You can find them. It's sort of how do you how do you go about doing that? In Europe, there's been a lot more use of quotas, particularly for women on boards, and those numbers have increased significantly. So Europe, most European countries, sort of lead the way on women's representation on a on a board level. The quotas haven't followed suit in corporate environments for senior leadership, and even in countries who've closed the gap or now are are looking better in their board balance in terms of of gender diversity, it hasn't hasn't followed suit in the corporate sector at a leadership level. So without the quotas, even though the country's moved on one, one measure, in the other measures it's staying the same. So to me, that's a pretty good indicator that the quotas helped get over a hurdle and a gap and a number. So we're stalling out between 20 and 30% representation, whether that's in government, whether that's in uh, business leadership, whether that's in community leadership, whether that's in nonprofit leadership. And so you think that there's got to be more talent than that uh, of, of women who can be in leadership roles. Building off of the quota idea, what are your thoughts around having some kind of mandatory system for disclosing the makeup of gender? quality or the representation of minorities at the corporate C-suite level, but also at the board level. I know there's conversations around maybe implementing a certain kind of system nationwide, particularly at the board level. Would that, do you think, further uh, some of the, the positive intentions around creating more equity? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a fine balance there. I think if if people are held to a measure and they're only trying to hit the numbers, you can hit the numbers and still not have equity or inclusion or all the, the culture that you want within an organization. And that will you know, in my opinion, not net the best result for your business, but that can be done where people play the game of, well, we'll hit the numbers, but it's still, it's still not meaningful. Um, so I think there's a balance to be found there. I do think that transparency and increased disclosure and getting comfortable with having these conversations is really important. Uh, Minerva did the scorecard for five years. And in fact, be told that the numbers didn't change a lot from year to year, but the fact that it was published, the fact that it came out, the fact that organizations could look at their sector and see, well, where do we fall 
and generate a conversation about it um, was really important. And I think what I would like to see is more organizations embracing sharing their diversity data in their HR section on their websites or being more transparent about it. And even if the numbers aren't great, there's certainly a move from uh, you know, we work with grade 11 girls and we can see what's important to them and, you know, equity and inclusion and these kind of um, values that an organization holds are more and more important to workers. And so the more you can be transparent and say, well, here's where we're at. We're not happy with where we're at. We're working towards it, but here's the strides we've made. My experience is that a lot of organizations are worried about sharing the data until they've got it looking pretty good. And I think there's value in saying we're on a journey and we're, we're working towards and here are the things that we're doing, because that at least shows people that you're valuing and that you are trying to create a workplace that, that walks the talk. Absolutely. I think that that's, uh, you know, and that kind of segues into my next question, which is, you know, we're in this moment of so many organizations and sectors and individuals um, just really prioritizing and identifying that equity and inclusion and that sense of belonging are really central to what they want to see in their workplaces or or go into, you know, in terms of um, the kinds of places that they apply for and the jobs that they might accept. What are you seeing that inspires you right now around this kind of work and maybe the positive examples that, you know, might inspire organizations or sectors to, to walk in that direction? I just think the uptick on... Uh, conversation, awareness. I mean, the fact that this podcast exists is inspiring to me that, that it's even a dialogue. I was driving my kids to school and we were listening to a pop station locally and there was a conversation about intersectionality on the morning show. Uh, two years ago in our women's leadership program, I, I was sitting in on a session and there was a woman we were talking, we were starting to introduce these ideas and there was a woman who works in a male dominated sector, had never been introduced to any kind of content around diversity, equity, and inclusion and said, you know, is intersectionality a made up word? And so I, I feel like the the, the fact that these conversations are more mainstream, that they're out there. I'm really inspired by companies who are posting their data on their websites. There's a couple of uh, tech companies who are doing really, really good work. They're not all the way yet there yet, but they're they're sharing information. They're blogging about it, you know, what they're doing, what they're trying and and sharing what works because this is a very, it's not a complicated problem, but it's a complex problem. And there's no one path for every organization to follow to get to where they need to be. So the more companies share, this is what we tried, this is what worked, this was the problem we were trying to solve, and here's how we went at it, that helps other organizations and other leaders feel like, oh, we can pilot something, we can test something, we can move it along. And I'm also really inspired that the conversation has gone beyond uh, just looking at gender equality and thinking about, you know, how if we think about justice in the workplace, if we think about who's being left out, if who's consistently not at the table and adding in the layer of uh, racial equality and, and thinking about gender beyond a binary of male, female, um, you know, those conversations are inspiring too because it takes it back to humanity and people and workers and what are we trying to create in our workplaces and economy that is, is good for the people who make that organization what it is. I think that's really well said. We mentioned childcare a bit briefly earlier on in the conversation, but I, I do want to ask a final question for me anyway on that issue, because even as we move toward greater equality in the workplace, that kind of needs to be matched with equality within a home. Uh, and one of my favorite books, the one that really resonated with me is Drop the Ball. And it, it touches on this idea that women are largely responsible for the home, but they're also trying to take on a greater responsibility and role within the workplace too. Where do you think we sit? in BC in terms of what needs to be done and how much we have done on the childcare issue and maybe 
breaking down some of the assumptions we have and biases we have about work in the home. Yeah, I mean, that's a juicy topic in terms of, and again, it's an individual topic, depending on relationships and humans and people and sort of how they're coming to that conversation. I do think, again, there's things employers can do to encourage that by encouraging and modeling and allowing both parents to take leave, both parents to have flexibility where they're um, role modeling that. There's great, great work being done locally uh, in the province of BC and nationally on pushing the childcare issue. And, and certainly we've seen that there's some funding coming forward from our governments, which is excellent, but there's still a lot of work to do to make it happen. The framing that I love the most comes from Armin Yelnesian. She's an economist who talks about the she session, but also talks about childcare as social infrastructure and takes it out of the realm of this is a personal problem for families to solve. And actually, if we don't provide this social infrastructure in terms of a caring economy, and having well-paid, uh, well-educated people doing that work and sort of providing those first layers of support to children, but also to, you know, seniors and, and anyone else sort of in our world that needs care. If we're not investing in that, that that's going to cost us in the long run. And so I love the idea of thinking about childcare and moving that along and, and not just thinking about it as um, low-paid, low-skilled work, but also recognizing that's an investment in our future of how we are launching uh, that first few years of, of schooling. And I think it's really important that like, it can't be that some women's economic uh, progression and achievement and leadership comes on the back of other women. So I think the whole issue of even what we're paying childcare workers and how we value that work is an important one because we're still then creating inequities if we're not doing that in a way that values that work for what it is. Those are great points, Tina. Thank you. Um, our final question, I, I just want to ask you, what is one thing that you want listeners to learn about what Minerva's role is in moving the dial and advancing gender equity for businesses and broader society across the province? Oh, thank you for allowing, getting, um, having that question. Minerva's been an organization that's been around for 20 years, and we've done many, many things. And our whole objective is to increase uh and, and, and accelerate women's leadership. We work with grade 11 girls, we work with women mid-career, early career. And I, I think the conversation and, and so the point that I wanna leave is that the problem is not solved. And I think if we look at Canada compared to other countries in the world, we might think that, oh, well, women are not, like it seems pretty good here. But comparatively, if we still look at the world, we're losing out on a lot of talent and a lot of potential, and a lot of opportunity because voices aren't heard, leaders aren't heard, opportunities aren't being granted to almost half the population. So um, when we think about leadership and we hear statistics like only 20%, only 30%, we have to keep asking the question, you know, where's the rest of it? Who's not there? Who's not at the table? And just continuing to think that there are things large and small that individuals, leaders, organizations can do, and then also in partnership with larger institutions like government. But we all can play a role in doing that. And um, one of the biggest things I, I would really encourage employers is to keep investing in your, in your team and your leadership and keep investing in your women um, and helping them develop to create those opportunities for them to, to rise and to step into leadership roles. Tina, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and for all of the work that you and Nerva BC are doing in our community. Thank you so much. That's Estrelke, CEO at Minerva BC, joining us today for a conversation. If you want to learn more, you can check out their website. I highly recommend you do, 
including some of the reports they put out, such as the Face of Leadership report, well worth a read for anyone who's unfamiliar. Joining me today as a co-host, Chantal Krish. Thanks so much, Chantal, for coming back on the show. Thank you. This has been EDI on BIV. Thanks so much for listening to the program. We publish new episodes every single Tuesday, so stay tuned. We'll have a new one up for you next week. And we encourage you to subscribe to our show as well. You can find us on your favorite podcast app. You can also head on over to BIV.com audio and subscribe there. 